Welcome to Mortals, a podcast where we explore how humans have dealt with death throughout history. From embalming and epitaphs to mourning and morgues, we are taking a look at rites, rituals, and practices from around the world. Mortals podcast is for the morbidly curious or the curiously morbid. This week, we are talking about taphophobia or the fear of premature burial. Please be advised, this episode contains mentions of necrophilia, mutilation of bodies, both dead and potentially alive, discussion of putrefaction, live burial, and of course, death. Now let's get on to the show. Hello, mortals. Uh, We're back here again with another episode for you. And this week we're talking about tap of... Wait. There's... Something feels different. Yeah. I see one. There's three of us in the room. What's happening here? Who could that be? (laughs) (laughs) Hello, friends. Yay! Hello. I'm back, bitches. Back again. (laughs) Guess who's back? Sorry I was gone for so long, mortals. But, you know, life happens. Things pile up. You have a mild mental breakdown. Not actually. It wasn't that traumatic. But I did have a lot going on. And unfortunately, this I needed to take a step back from mortals for a little while. Recharge my batteries. Uh, But now I'm back. I'm like a bad rash. You just can't get rid of me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully... We can can cut that if you want. No, I love it. Well, hopefully our our listeners haven't gone too too long without hearing from you, as you have been busy producing videos over on Professor Peaches on YouTube about various historical topics. I sure have. We're cranking them out like you wouldn't believe these days. So, and I'm excited to come back and talk more about things that are a bit more morbid, death-related, so. Speaking of, this week... <laughs> <laughs> terrible transition. Segway! Segway! Uh, I'm going to be talking about premature burial, or taphophobia, or people getting buried when maybe they're not dead, question mark? Yes, that's what we're talking about this week. And this was really fun for me to dig into. Um, it's a few. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And that was not intentional. That was <laughs> naturally funny. Completely accidental. Um, I'm not even joking. Uh, <laughs> really fun for me to dig into for multiple reasons. Um, I found this really great book on the topic, first of all. Uh, It took a week and a half longer to get here. I literally just finished reading it today, but I am a speed reader, speed demon, speed reader demon. (laughs) I read really fast, um, so it's all good, but it was chock full of information. And so there's a lot of stuff in here. And now that there's three of us again, I do want to give more space for conversation. So um, keep that in mind. I don't know how long this episode is going to end up, but uh, there was a lot of information off the top. Yeah. Well, let's get into it then, shall we? Get into it. Uh, sure. Let's go. So very first question off the top. How do you know someone's dead? Interestingly, it's a very difficult question. And I have read slash heard certain tales about the various methods throughout history, which people have used to assert somebody is dead, including like smoke enemas, burning the bottom of people's feet, stuff like that. I know nowadays that um, emergency response will use a really hard, like raking knuckles down the sternum to elicit pain response from uh, unconscious or unresponsive calls. Mm. So there's a variety of ways. It is not so simple as heart stop, brain stop, oxygen and blood no longer flowing. Though I think that's kind of our modern medical understanding. Okay. How about you, Christia? So I have a 
I have a different take on this, and I think it's something that I might have mentioned on Mortals before. I don't know if it actually made it into the episode, but different cultures have a different definition of dead. So sometimes if somebody is in a vegetative state and they're unresponsive, people will, from certain cultures, will do burial rites or, you know, death rites and things, even though the person, by our Western definition, uh, or at least in Canada, is that this person is very much alive. They still have a heartbeat. They, uh, you know, they still show vital signs, or at least vital signs as we know them. But in other cultures, if you're vegetative or you're unresponsive, uh, you know, some cultures, you know, that's that's it. And, you know, um, that person is moved on through the afterlife. They are no longer, you know, with us. Um, so but as far as like physical reactions, I know that like eye dilation is one that people use. And I know that that like can be. Uh, also, but also if your eyes don't dilate, I know that can be like a sign of like other medical issues as well. So mm. also if you're blind, that doesn't really work because your eyes don't dilate because you're blind. So yeah, there's a lot. It's a very, of... co- it's a very complicated. <laughs> exactly. It's a lot yeah. more complicated than most people might think. Most people would answer that question by saying you're not breathing and your heart's not beating. But as we yeah. will see, that's not always That's not always such a clear thing to determine if those things are still going on. We'll get, we'll get to it. Even so it's a, it's a murky subject area. Yeah. At what point does someone become beyond resuscitation? Yes, exactly. Right off the top. I did want to define tapophobia since that is what I have decided to use as part of the title for the episode. Um, So tapophobia is, a two-part word made up of taphos, which means grave or tomb in ancient Greek, and phobos, which is fear. So fear of the grave, it's a psychopathological fear of being buried alive, specifically as a result of being incorrectly pronounced dead. Oh, dang. So I feel like that very well encapsulates what's going on here in this episode. All right, let's get into it. So this wonderful book that I read that I mentioned. It's called Buried Alive, The Terrifying History of Our Most Primal Fear uh, by Jan Bondison or Jan Bondison. I think it's a male author who's a doctor. So I'm tempted from the surname to go with Jan, J-A-N, Jan uh, <laughs> Bondison. It's really great, written from the perspective of a medical doctor. So he's pretty decent at the historical research side of things, though, considering. So it's more of like a medical scientific history rather than it is does involve social components, but it's more focused on the medical side of things. Um, but a really great thing that he starts off with in this book is this examination of the folklore that surrounds premature burial, because that is obviously contributing to what society is talking about and what society believes at the time. And a lot of this fear of premature burial is really focused on Europe, particularly continental Europe, um, which doesn't include the UK and England. They're seeing themselves as separate as, and what is going on with those continental Europeans? What are they so scared of? That's kind of how it breaks down at the time. So through this examination of European folklore, particularly through the late Middle Ages and into like the Enlightenment era, so from like the 1300s to the 1700s kind of time period, there's four very archetypal folklore stories that appear in multiple areas across Europe, like the same kind of thematic story. The Lady with the Ring is one really prominent folklore story that comes up. And the gist of like the bones of that story is a woman is buried with a valuable ring. A grave robber decides to dig up her coffin and retrieve the valuables, but she's still alive. And this one was marked as early actually as the second century in the common era. So like way, way back. But the most well-known and associated associated story with a person is to a woman named Rishmodis von Adukt from Cologne in Germany around 1400. But notably, this tale is widespread not only in Germany, but also in 
England, in France, in Northern Ireland, in Scotland, in Sweden, and it even pops up in Lunenburg, which is in Nova Scotia here in Canada. Hmm. Um, so different versions of this tale, which have those basic bare bones. A woman is buried alive with a valuable ring. Grave robber digs it up. The woman's still alive. That's one example. Another example of a folklore tale that pops up with kind of this theme of premature burial is one called The Two Young Lovers. Essentially, a pair of lovers is forbidden to marry by the woman's father. Um, The woman dies, quote unquote, (laughs) of a broken heart. And then the young man visits her body in her burial vault, intending to end his own life. But she awakens just in time and the pair abscond together in secret because she's been declared dead. It's like the, the positive outcome of a Romeo and Juliet tale. <laughs> I was, was kind of to thinking say. that. It's very, very similar in tone to Romeo and Juliet, of course, except for the ending. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, slowly they've taken more time to cry. More time to mourn <laughs> and cry. <laughs> the next example of a folklore story is my least favorite of the bunch. Um, it's called The Lecherous Monk. Oh, no. Yeah. A monk is asked to watch over an innkeeper's dead daughter. And all I will say is, insert necrophilia here. (laughs) Uh, It turns out she's not dead. She has a baby nine months later, and her parents thank the monk for reviving their daughter. Uh, I don't really like that one. (laughs) It's Mm. very icky to me. Um, So we're just going to breeze right on past that one. And the last one in the bunch is called the careless anatomist. So a doctor or a physician or an anatomist is asked to inspect the body of a deceased person. It turns out their heart is still beating once they open them up. Um, And then the anatomist is generally chased out of town for their transgressions or their murdery hand. And this is a theme that kind of encapsulates people's distrust of physicians at the time that we'll see pop up throughout the actual history, not just in the folklore here. So keep that in mind. It's interesting. I think I've definitely heard a version of the lady with the ring before, Mm. but those other ones are kind of new to me, which is interesting. The, The lecherous monk one just reminds me of Kill Bill, which if you've watched Kill Bill, you know. I have, but it's been so long that I've forgotten. The Pussy Wagon and my name's Buck. And I'm here. I'm to sorry, book. the what? The Pussy Wagon. <laughs> Do you not remember the Pussy Wagon from Kill Bill? It's I have no tolerance for gore, so I have not watched Kill Bill. Mm, that's fair. I usually don't either, but I've watched it like in pieces on YouTube through various scenes. So I've basically seen the entire thing, but I just watched it like over three days via like youtube clips and then i like watched half of yeah Mm. it's a good movie but yes it does involve a woman in a coma and a nurse that's bad yep that uh that sums it up pretty well Mm -hmm. one through line through a lot of these folklore tales in some cases when it's repeated amongst people in whatever society it's circulating in, is sometimes there's the idea that uh, death must claim its victim no matter what. And so sometimes even though someone appears out of their grave alive, uh, the person who discovers this incorrect burial or premature burial actually dies of fright or something of the sort. Mm, Um, So in any case, someone ends up dying. And I think this is a thing that pops up quite often in folklore is like some kind of lesson or morality. And the lesson in all of these seems to be death has to get its victim. Someone has to die. Yeah, exactly. So the time period where taphophobia or the fear of premature burial kind of gets whipped up into its frenzy is basically between uh, the seven, the 1700s and the 19 and 1910 or so. Like that's a 210 year period where people are talking about this. And a lot of these folklore tales find their way into newspaper reports into just like the general zeitgeist at the time wherein people believe them to be true. Even though the details are very similar from one town to the next, 
the general details, but the names are different. People still believe them to be true. And so the newspapers reporting on them in a way kind of whip up this frenzy, but then it also becomes a little bit self-perpetuating because people believe it and then repeat it. And Mm -hmm. then because people's attention has been drawn by that, newspapers will continue to report on these things, sometimes either outright fabricating or not checking their facts and checking their details before they publish it with something that is actually disprovable based on the name or the details of whoever is supposed to have been actually buried alive. So the whole culture of fear of premature burial is permeated all the way through by these folklore tales that get repeated over and over again with different details, uh, different names, different towns and that kind of thing. So really interesting in that aspect. They also included, aside from these four archetypal folklore tales that premature burial uh, stories get told as, there's also details like babies supposedly being born in coffins, sounds coming from graves. Sometimes if a body is exhumed, they'll have a grimacing facial expression on the corpse. Um, chewed up or torn fingers, which is presumably from an attempted escape from the coffin. Uh, Sometimes there's been hair found clutched in the hands of the deceased, presumably someone who pulled it out in their despair at awakening, finding themselves to be buried alive, which is not unlike a lot of the folklore that I've just been mentioning, that theme of desperation and all that kind of stuff. So there's little details that weave their way through a lot of these stories. And uh, I'll come back to these sort of towards the end. Okay, so I mentioned that the the time period that we're really talking about is between basically between 1700 or so, and 1910. And that we're also kind of focusing in on continental Europe, primarily France and Germany, is where the bulk of this is happening and the bulk of the the writing about this topic is coming up. Not to say that people weren't talking about premature burial before this or the idea that people might be buried alive because obviously it exists in the folklore. But um, in 1740, a Danish anatomist who made his career in France, his name was Jacques Beignet Winslow, or Winslow, not great at Danish pronunciation. Um, He wrote a thesis in Latin called Morte Incerte Signa, I'm not great at pronouncing Latin, which basically is like the uncertain signs of death. (laughs) Uh, And he argued that the typical signs of death being relied upon, um, such as lack of heartbeat, uh, no breathing, those things weren't reliable. Therefore, there were a lot of people at risk of being buried alive. And supposedly the existence of this folklore was evidence of that actually happening. So that was published in 1740 in France. He was working in France, although he was Danish. Um, and then it was published in Latin, but a man named Jean-Jacques Bruyer d'Ablencourt, <laughs> who was a French medical practitioner, very skilled at translating works from other languages to French and back and forth and all that kind of stuff. He translates Winslow's work into French and then expands upon it throughout the 1740s. So he has this meeting with Winslow. Um, They talk about this. He's like, hey, I'm really skilled at translation. I can get this out to a wider audience. Will you let me translate this? And he, Winslow says, yes. Bruyer translates it. And Bruyer didn't seem to have any inclination towards believing in the concept of premature burial previously, but by the time he's got this work finished and ready to be published, he seems to be very on board with the idea that these so-called very reliable signs of death in people, in corpses, are not so reliable as we might think. And that essentially, (laughs) the only reliable piece of evidence that indicates someone who we believe has died is actually dead is the putrefaction or decay of their corpse. Mm. So that seems to be the only thing that they can definitively say, yes, this person is dead. We can bury them in the ground and know that they're not going to wake up in their coffin to find that they have been buried alive. It's this I have heard about, and I think it was one of the uses of dead houses 
outside of uh, wintertime storage when the ground was too hard to bury people. If I recall correctly, I might just be making fallacious connections out of my brain, but I have heard the, about letting them start to to decompose, to be like, ah, yes, that is not something a living person would do. Hmm. Well, depending on the time and the place that you're talking about, that's probably accurate that that was something they were doing. This was a, an idea that lasted a very long time. Yeah. That's such a good word. Putrefaction. Isn't it just so, like, you can just hear. It's the essence of what it means. Yeah, you can just hear the meaning of it in the way that the word sounds. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So, yeah, putrefaction. (laughs) Uh, For a long time, the only, quote unquote, only reliable indicator that this person is actually dead So as I mentioned, Bruyer translated Winslow's work and he expands upon it. And he actually writes a two-volume dissertation because the work was criticized by someone else and he needed to refute these criticisms. Uh, So he wrote his own, revised it, and authored his own uh, dissertation sur l'incertitude des signes de la mort. So like, a dissertation on the uncertainty of signs of death, refuting someone who stepped to him and said, hey, you're wrong. <laughs> Hit him with a two-volume dissertation. <laughs> no, I'm right, and this is why I'm right. Um, and this is really, really popular. It's a very, very popular pub- publication, publishing version of the book, whatever you want to call it. Um, it gets translated into Italian, English, Swedish, and German as it spreads in popularity all across Europe. This guy would have been huge on Tumblr. (laughs) I'm big on Tumblr. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So this guy, he just, he kind of came out of nowhere. Like he wasn't in with this idea of premature burial. He finds this work by Winslow. He kind of reads through it and translates it on his own. And then it kind of becomes his entire being. And his entire reason in, in his career. Um, he's, he's a medical practitioner, but he just like takes up this mantle of like fighting against this unthinkable fate of maybe there's people out there being buried when they're not actually dead. A tapophobia doctor, basically. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, yeah. Uh, one thing I do want to stop and note here is I've mentioned a few times that a lot of this... Um, frenzy is focused upon continental Europe and not so much on England, though there are some people in England who kind of get on board with Bruyere's ideas um, in the 1700s and early 1800s. But by the time we hit the 1800s, which is also known as the 19th century, I feel like one of us did a great episode about what was going on with dead bodies in the 19th century in England. Ho ho ho, it didn't matter if you were if you were buried alive, a resurrectionist was probably the best possible outcome for you. Unless they'd put a, a coffin torpedo on there and you're in there like, god damn it, if someone tries to dig me up, it's either gonna blow them up or it's gonna blow us both up. Yeah, so um, as we have learned, or if you listener have listened to the 19th century body snatchers episode, you know that uh, people in England weren't so concerned with being buried alive. They were very, very preoccupied with the idea of someone taking their legitimately dead body and using it for scientific, what have you, uh, Mm -hmm. scientific inquiry against their will. So they were very preoccupied with that. That was kind of capturing their imagination. So instead of the uh, safety coffins and all the other ingenious things um, that I'll get to later, they were instead building cages and security around their coffin to keep the body in rather than the idea of them being able to get out if they awaken in their coffin and are alive. (laughs) Okay, so... That little bit about England aside, Bruyere was not without his critics. As I mentioned, he had to uh, clap back at someone who was stepping to him (laughs) and criticizing his work about the uncertainty of how we identify if people are actually dead or not. Um, There was one 
uh, French surgeon in particular um, named Antoine Louis. He responded to this work in his writing uh, called Lettre sur la certitude des signes de la mort. And this can very shortly be summed up as him defending the competency of doctors in certifying death. He was a doctor himself and he was defending his profession and the basically the competency of everyone in his profession. Like, this is our job. It's our job to certify that people are dead or they're alive. Like, we're here taking care of our pa- our patients. Um, of course, we know how to tell if someone is actually dead or Ooh, not. A doctor fight. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, like I said, this is like a story of scientific inquiry and the evolution of medicine in a way. I mean, what else is medicine for but keeping people alive? Yeah. Or making yeah. sure they're alive. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, if all else fails, there's always smoke animals, I guess. <laughs> yeah, oh. Uh, I don't want to go into details on that, but that will come up a little bit later. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. Okay, so not only is his, uh, this Antoine Louis, is his motivation for criticizing Bruyere's translation of Winslow's work about how do we know if people are dead. Not only is this um, motivation to defend his profession, essentially, but he also took the opportunity to kind of attack people like Winslow and Bruyere, who believe in this uncertainty in certifying death, as knowingly mutilating the still living. So if you believe this and you continue being an anatomist or a surgeon or uh, a coroner, although they didn't necessarily use that word at the time for people who are supposedly dead, but you know that there's a a chance they might still be alive. Is that not inhumane? So that's kind of one of the angles that he took. And unfortunately, it wasn't well received by the public. Um, They sided more on the idea of protecting people and what if they are being buried alive? And that that argument really captured the layperson's imagination rather than the defense of doctors because the layperson is not a doctor and they're, <laughs> they're not, uh, they don't have all the insider knowledge that would come alongside that. So yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, a really hot debate in the 1700s about death and all that kind of stuff. Louis also believed in the efficacy of rigor mortis or the changes in the cornea um, of the eye over putrefaction as a signifying true death. Um, he felt that rigor mortis was a lot more accurate in diagnosing death, if you want to say it that way, um, because when it comes to things like gangrene or the decay of a limb, that can happen independent of somebody as a whole dying, like a body as a whole dying. So putrefaction itself isn't always an indicator of that someone has died. So that was kind of his argument there. Um, he also raised the concern of miasma or bad air. Mm. And we talked about this briefly, Mariah and I talked about this briefly in the last episode on human composting, but the idea and the the miasma theory of bad air and that being the way that disease is passed on was really prevalent at the time. Um, It has since been disproven. But basically the miasma theory is something that held that diseases like cholera or the plague, or just death in general, were caused by bad air. And that epidemics of that sort were perpetuated by being in the presence of someone who's died of these things, or someone who is sick from these things, um, or like dead bodies and corpses in general. So yeah, that's why the plague doctor masks have such a long face on them is because they're actually, they were actually filled with like a potpourri type mixed try and protect those doctors from the quote-unquote bad air mm. which was also equated with being bad smells so i guess if you couldn't smell the bad air you couldn't get the bad air diseases uh, but that's why plague doctor masks are like beakish they look like giant birds yeah because they used to be filled with good good smelling stuff just put grandma's potpourri right in your mask <laughs> <laughs> and you won't get plague. Ah, I guess. This, this is, is not also... sound medical advice. Wear a goddamn mask, get vaccinated, wash your hands. <laughs> this is also why in Inuyasha, when Sango, uh, the demon uh, hunter, puts on her mask, she is still affected by 
miasma. Mm. She should have put grandma's potpourri in there. <laughs> <laughs> the power of potpourri. All that to say, the miasma theory was disproven. I can't remember from what. I looked it up earlier, but it's slipped my mind. But it's uh, listed on Wikipedia as an obsolete medical theory. So the miasma theory has been disproven. But at the time, it's something that really preoccupied people. So the idea of prioritizing these maybe still living but probably dead people and keeping their corpses above ground, essentially, over the definitely living people and potentially putting them in harm's way by having them around dead bodies or maybe dead bodies. Um, that was a, that was a choice that was needing to be made. And that will come up very soon here. But before we get there, I want to talk about one thing, one other theory and one other potential explanation that people came up with for why are people awakening supposedly from being dead hmm. and awakening in their coffins in their coffins if this is such a widespread thing that it's in our folklore it's in our newspapers even though the newspapers are reporting stories from the folklore if it's so widespread why is it happening we have to have an explanation as to why people seem to be dead and why people aren't and this is a time period where christianity had previously had a really strong foothold in europe but it was coming through the Enlightenment and rationalism and all those types of things. So people are beginning to trust a little more in science and put their faith in that and scientific theory and like rational explanations of things rather than the supernatural. So just because previously someone might have woken up in their coffin, that might have been seen as a, a holy resurrection or something of those sorts. But in this time period, you're thinking of it more in the, the rational and the literal way. So what could be happening to their body that makes them awaken. So one German physician named Christoph Wilhelm Hufeland <laughs> came up with this description of something he called Scheintod or the death trance, which he theorized was a state where the person is aware of everything happening around them. Like they can hear everything, they can see everything, but signs of life like breathing and their pulse are not apparent. And there were supposedly people who awoke from this shine toad or this death trance and reported these things. So they could recount things that people had said around them while they were in this state. This state is not always fatal, according to Hufeland, um, but death is always preceded by it. So anytime somebody dies, I guess a slow death, not an instant death, anytime somebody dies, they have this death trance state. But just because someone is in a death trance state doesn't mean they are going to die, if that makes sense. Yeah. This doctor has the greatest name. Can you say it for me just one more time? <laughs> I really take pride in the fact that I took one year of German um, and I just love pronouncing German things. So yes, uh, Christoph Wilhelm Hufeland. Hufeland. German is really fun to pronounce because everything, as long as you know how to pronounce each letter, you can say any word because Phonetics. every every letter is pronounced. Yes. Christoph Wilhelm Hufeland. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, yes, yeah, so this Incredible. supposed state of uh, Scheintod required intense resuscitation to break out of. That which sense. leads us to is this person in fact dead? Question mark. <laughs> what if they're not? What do we do? So there are a lot of things that people theorized could help break people out of Shinto or being dead and seeming dead or anything that you might do to a supposed corpse before you actually bury it in the ground to ensure that they are in fact dead before you bury them in the ground. Including, but not limited to... Vivisection. Oof. Uh, that escalated real freaking fast. That's <laughs> fatal. Yeah. If vivisection. You're cutting them open theoretically as they're still alive and seeing if anything is still moving. Is their heart still beating even though you can't hear it outside? That's what vivisection Jesus. means, essentially. Um, including also sharp smells. So onion, garlic, or vinegar. Uh, near their nose or smelling salts was one yeah, way. I was about to say it's like the fainting salts. Yeah. Period dramas. <laughs> um, tickling. 
<laughs> uh, whips. Of course. Uh, limb or tongue pulling, like repetitive pulling of a limb or pulling of the tongue. Very loud noises near their ears. So this sounds like a list of like CIA torture methods. <laughs> yeah. Is waterboarding just... one of the next ones? Uh, yeah. That one didn't come up, actually. No waterboarding was listed. Shocking. I, Shocking. That is surprising. But also, if they're coming at this from the idea of, like, oh, they can, like, still feel, hear, and understand everything. Yeah. Let's employ torture because we don't know how much is required to break them out of a death trance before it kills them. Like, <laughs> or yeah. before they die. Yeah. Oof. It's, uh, the stuff belongs in the, the levels of purgatory. <laughs> It just yeah. reminds me of those memes that's like, we need to figure out a way to break him out of this coma. And usually if it's like a dad, it's like, well, I didn't want to resort to this. And then the person goes over and adjusts the thermostat. He's like, stop! <laughs> <laughs> Such a dad thing. Yeah. Uh, Turns off the TV. I was watching that. Yeah, exactly. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, there was the joke like 10 years ago when Justin Bieber was coming out and it's like, Yes, Justin Bieber, your music brought my, my dear sweet mother out of her coma because when I put the music on, she got up and turned it off. <laughs> <laughs> Can't listen to this shit. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, loud noises or terrible music. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's an option. Um, Mariah has alluded to various enemas, including tobacco smoke oh, cool. enema- enemas. Um, which was actually employed by our friend Antoine Louis, who was the criticizer, criti- criti- the critic, critic. That's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> the, the critic of um, Bruyere. Uh, he employed tobacco smoke enemas, and I'm assuming everybody knows what the word enema means. That's listening, but in case you don't, that means things going up your bum. Yep. Um, stiff brushing on sensitive skin. So like armpits or like in your inner thighs and all that kind of area like the very sensitive skin on your body hot wax applied to the forehead was another theorized way of breaking people out of this supposed death trance or state of seeming death things being poured into the mouth including vinegar pepper and urine That's somebody, that's so, that's just somebody is like, you know, like the neighboring potter or whatever is like, oh yeah, I got this guy's, he goes and pisses in his neighbor and is like, enemy's mouth or something. Like that's, I know something, something ammonia, but I call bullshit. At least one person in history, I guarantee you, was like, I volunteer, I'll piss in his mouth. I'll do it. (laughs) Just different to, like, spite that person. Oh, my God. I, I would bet money on that. There's no way to prove it. There's no way to ever prove that that happened, but I, I bet on it. Yeah. Um, so, so I realize I started off with the vivisection, but uh, they kind of ramp up a tiny bit from here. Razors to the feet. Yeah, that's the one. Or other body parts and or cutting off appendages like toes. Mm-hmm. Um, the application of insects, like into their ears and into their crevices. Uh, Ooh, bugs love bodies. Bugs love bodies. Um, the application of electricity or galvanism. And this is not just inclu- not just the body as a whole, but actually employing multiple tactics. Um, <laughs> vivisection and then galvanism right onto the muscle Oh, was something that they would do. This one is is my least favorite and makes me the most squeamish because I'm very squeamish when it comes to medical things. Inserting a needle through the chest cavity into the heart that has a little flag attached. And if the flag starts moving, it means the heart's still beating. Oh my God. Jeez. And somehow not my least favorite, but also the worst on my list is red hot pokers being applied to various body parts, including enema style. Yeah. Yep. Old-fashioned doctors just love putting stuff up butts. <laughs> well, they're all fucking high on opium and cocaine, so... I And no doubt that those things were put up butts to see what would happen. 
Yeah, would not surprise me. So there's a reason colonics are not also medically recommended, but still, there's a some parts of culture that are obsessed with cleansing the body via the butthole. Anyways. <laughs> Yeah, so like I said, this list is not exhaustive, but these are some of the things that doctors were coming up with at the time in order to try to prove that someone was still alive or that someone was, in fact, dead. But even so, with all of those things that I've listed, putrefaction was still the indicator that someone was, in fact, dead. People could try these things and none of them would work and they still wouldn't be sure if someone was dead or not. But if they started decaying, absolutely. This person is dead. Put them in the ground right now. Yeah. Now they're dinner for other things. Yes. Yes. So that being said, instead of this crude mutilation of presumed corpses, perhaps we should build waiting houses for the dead so that oh. you can sit and wait to see if these dead bodies start decaying. So this was an idea proposed in Bruyere's work, um, an idea. How do we know for sure that people are dead? Of course, it's putrefaction. Well, how do we facilitate that while also trying to keep miasma or bad air away from the living? So you build separate buildings, separate hospitals for the dead in order to decay. And they are attended by people who sit there day and night waiting to see if someone wakes up or talks or moves or twitches or does anything to indicate that they are in fact alive. So that's the idea proposed by Bruyere. He's French. France, people in France say, mm, I don't know, not really for us. That sounds expensive, doesn't it? Just to potentially avoid a few premature burials. Uh, but the Germans... The Germans really love this idea. <laughs> and there are people, there are rich people in Germany willing to fund this because they do not want to be buried alive. So not only do the Germans start building some of these hospitals for the dead, they also have a push to implement a longer wait time for burial in general, extending it to 24 to 48 hours rather than this person has been declared dead, get them in the ground immediately. So the first waiting house or mortuary or hospital for the dead kind of idea that pops up in Germany, I think is in Weimar, actually. Um, and it is branded a Leichenhauser, which I need to look up what Leichen means, but Hauser would just mean house. It means werewolf. Leichen. Leichen. I thought it was Lebenhauser and then... It was the Leichenhauser. Corpse. <laughs> Leichen. Corpse. Corpse house. Of course. Germans so efficient with their language. <laughs> yeah. It's like the, the fall bile, which is the falling sword or falling blade. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Leichenhauser, which is corpse house. So they start building these after Bruyere's text gets translated into German and the idea spreads in Germany. So there's widespread uptake of this model in Germany in the late 17, early 1800s. And through all this time, they, they operate for like 100 years or so, or some, some time span close to that. And there are very few, if any, reports of successful rescues of presumed dead, but actually alive people from these waiting mortuaries. And whether or not that's a signifier of the fact that people weren't actually being buried alive, or it's just a symptom of the fact that not everybody was using these places, although mm -hmm. they were trying to encourage every single person who died to have their body sent to these places. Um, yeah. The uptake wasn't 100%, so that might be a factor as well. But it's kind of one of those things where if you don't do it, you won't know. And if you do it and nothing comes of it, then it's like, wow, we wasted all this money, yeah. right? But the Germans are happy to sit there and keep doing their thing a little while longer because they still don't know. There's still no definitive proof of what death looks like aside from putrefaction as far as the medical community is concerned. So yeah. they're happy to continue on. They already have these houses uh, scattered throughout Germany. They're happy to just let them continue doing their thing, even though it wasn't super palatable to the general public and not everybody was interested in actually being sent to them. 
though the idea came originally from France, it was taken up in Germany, although there was later agitation in France itself to do these kinds of things, but I didn't find any reference to them actually happening. That's not to say that not, no waiting houses or hospitals for the dead were ever built in France. And what was the time period again for this? This is like late 1700s, early 1800s. Oh, I, I, yeah, I feel like the uh, the guillotine took care of a lot of, is this person dead in the 1790s? Yeah. <laughs> in France. <laughs> okay, I'm trying to remember. I came across something about guillotines oh. while I was doing this. Yeah, because French Revolution was 92? 1792, is, 1793? Is the thing that you maybe came across was just, like, the idea of, like, when did, when is somebody dead? Because I don't know if there were reports of, like, after people were beheaded, like, their heads and, like... Oh, yeah, there's... They would continue so, like, trying to, like, talk or, like, emote. Yeah. No, okay, I found it. I didn't write it down in my notes because I thought I would remember it, but... Um, <laughs> our, our good friend, uh, Antoine Louis... He made a prototype of a guillotine. It was called a Louisette. So kind of same fashion that guillotine came from guillotine. Yes, exactly. Um, and I was like, man, I have to remember this and mention this because Mariah did an episode about guillotines. <laughs> Which if you haven't listened to, it's called the, A Brief History of Guillotines. I put it together very quickly, but there's lots of fun, interesting info. Star Wars is mentioned because it's relevant, kind of. <laughs> Star Wars. Star Wars is always relevant. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, yeah, so uh, Hospitals for the Dead, uptaken in Germany, not so much in France. Unclear if it ever really got taken up much anywhere outside of Germany, but those those Germans, they, they stuck by their decision to make them. Uh, one other thing that came up that I mentioned earlier that was an opportunity to see if someone was dead or to provide escape if someone were dead and in fact buried alive was the idea of safety coffins or just mechanisms of any sort to aid this supposedly deceased person who's been buried but is actually alive aid them in their escape from the grave so the first known safety coffin was built as early as 1792 for the duke ferdinand of brunswick and he commissioned it to be made with a window, like a, like a escape hatch kind of thing, and an air hole. And also, instead of the coffin being nailed shut as was usual or traditional, uh, it was openable from the inside by a lock and key. So that if he were to awaken in his coffin, finding that he had been buried alive, he was able to escape at least from the coffin itself. There's the whole other deal of climbing up out of the earth and all that. But yeah, so uh, Duke Ferdinand, first safety coffins built for him. But there were a lot of different versions of this and different inventors and engineers had different ideas of what the best way was. What's the best method for allowing a person who has supposedly died and has been buried alive to actually escape this terrible fate because humans the worst thing worse than dying is mistakenly believed to have died though you're still alive <laughs> and not being able to save yourself can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps if there's no way out of the coffin pull to where <laughs> to the it's, top of the coffin <laughs> which is always my thing when i see anything that's about getting out of a coffin having been buried alive so i'm like there's a lot of dirt on top of that and i don't know about y'all but i've hauled some bags of earth and they're just bags. They're not big enough to cover me. If there's several feet of earth on top of me, I ain't going fucking nowhere, no matter how easy it is to open the coffin when there isn't four to six feet of dirt on top. Well, I know with a lot of um, archaeology and stuff and like excavations of burial grounds that have like coffins or things, I know eventually a lot of the... Um, like, this is obviously not really relevant, I guess, if you're freshly buried... But eventually, like, the coffin lid will cave in. But sometimes, like, yeah. when it's not a well-constructed coffin, like, it'll just... Or depending on how deep you're buried, too, it can just, like, yeah. cave in like, right away. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That, like, yeah, water saturation into... Like, can you imagine? You're like, I've been buried alive, but it's loose earth. But there's a wicked storm that night. It just soaks the earth. <laughs> it's yeah. super heavy. 
well. Anyways. Continuing onwards. Um, <laughs> there are many different designs of safety coffins. I don't want to go into details about who invented what. That honestly could be a full episode in itself. There's a lot of content here, as I said. But uh, just to give you a sampling and a taste, we have another wonderful list of all the ingenious things that people have come up with. Okay, so there was suggested to have a hole in every coffin with a rope attached to the church bell from in the cemetery, the church cemetery, obviously, the church cemetery that they were buried in, um, to be rung by the premature buried person if they were to awaken in their coffin. Very impractical. Yeah, aren't church bells, like, super heavy and require a lot of pull? Yes, and that was one of the things, one of the complaints was like, this person just awoke in their grave. They're not going to have a lot of strength. They're not going to be able to ring that church bell. And also, not like a lot, lot of tug. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like not a lot, lot of space. room in a coffin to really yank on it. Yeah, so that one was pretty much like a no-go. Someone else suggested a hole, just a, just a hole in general, through which a parson or whoever was attending the church cemetery um, could sniff for signs of putrefaction. If they started smelling putrefaction, you just take that tube out of there and give it to the next person who gets buried. Sorry, honey, I gotta go to my shift as a putrefaction sniffer tonight. <laughs> it's, it's like being a poison taster given the, like, miasma theory. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in a way, for sure. Uh, perhaps a little more, um, I don't know, I don't want to say practical, but it seems more practical to me. They, yeah. Someone suggested burying an axe and spade in every coffin. Huh? So you can bust your way out. Again, not a lot of room for swinging tools. Not really, but it's better than nothing, you know? Yeah, it's... I'm trying to imagine using an axe from a space that's, like, a foot and a half deep. And I'm like, all I could... I'm like, would you, like, balance it on your knee, blade up, and then try and just, like, ram it upwards? Like, But even then, like, once you get through, like, all of that soil's gonna, like, collapse just, into the... Yeah. Yeah, yeah not ideal. Not, not ideal. ideal. Uh, at the very least, someone suggested... Putting in tubes for light, air, or the delivery of food and water if someone was discovered to be buried alive. Sorry or, about that, bud. You just live there now. Or alternati alter alternative, alternatively, uh, tubes just for speaking or to have little bells attached so that the person inside can indicate that they are alive. Uh, but heard, of course, I've definitely heard of the, the bells. Yeah. Not necessarily like the church bell, but just, you know, like little bells. He is the, the grave digger and he's working a night shift and he hears the bell ringing. Mm -hmm. Well, there's nobody there! Yeah, I was going to say, well, that of course relies upon the fact that there must always be someone on the, the upside, the top side, to hear the bell or the person mm -hmm. screaming from their coffin before they pass out and die or whatever, whatever yeah. they were thinking was happening. Yeah, sorry about all the traffic noise. For whatever reason, it's everybody get out your loudest vehicle night tonight in the Okanagan. It's all good. More tubes. Tubes with strings attached to the heads, hands, and feet of the buried person attached to a bell on the other side. Similar idea, except instead of ringing it, it's if anything moves in the coffin, uh, anything on the corpse moves, then you'll hear this ringing little bell. Of course, that comes into issues when corpses naturally decompose. They do move. Mm -hmm. because it doesn't say the same size things are decaying things are expanding because of gases and all those types of things um yeah. so not reliable spring loaded coffin lids with a uh, yeah. with an activation that the person inside can spring up that still begs the question of if you're buried underground not so ideal if you're in a, a vault okay maybe is the vault sealed then you're still sealed inside the vault but maybe yeah. you have a better chance that way trap doors and ladders leading out of the coffin <laughs> mailbox style flag indicators oh uh, where someone can just press a button and it just goes whoop <laughs> <laughs> stick it up like i've got mail but nope someone's alive down here one more thing i wanted to add to this list that i came across which inconclusive doesn't seem to actually be real i found a blog post that kind of disproved it but it appears in some like it appears in this book as supposedly real it was something called bateson's belfry hmm. which was like like one of those 
tubes and bells ideas. Oh, yeah. Um, that supposedly the earliest known reference to this appears in a Michael Crichton book, I think called Crichton. The Great Crichton. I can never, yeah. I've only, it's one of those words that I've only ever read and not heard pronounced. <laughs> Michael yeah, Crichton. Yeah, Jurassic Park. Okay. Um, I think it's called The Great Train Robbery is the book of this man named Bateson who created this little bell and whatever. He was supposedly lauded by Queen Victoria and all these things. Um, But there was no evidence found other than sources, like the book that I bought, that cite (laughs) Crichton's novel as a reference. So it might be a case of one of those things that you hear about and you just assume is true. So you put a reference to it and then now it's in a somewhat reputable source. So other people assume it's true, um, which is the thing that can sometimes happen with academia and all that jazz. So um, potentially yeah. not real, doesn't seem to be real. Yeah. Question maybe Maybe a list of things that were like proposed and planned and potentially patented, but not necessarily employed. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether that counts as Michael Crichton planning a safety coffin mechanism or if he was just like this is just a cool bit yeah uh, but okay i'm seeing that we're at a lot of time so i am going to be wrapping up here pretty quickly even though i could go on and on and on but i really quickly want to address a few things so i'm going to do it sort of rapid fire here so i've gone on about how putrefaction is the only sign that is reliable to indicate that someone is dead. And this is true, although in 1846, someone named Eugene Bouchut uh, suggested using a previous invention called the stethoscope for listening to somebody's heartbeat. And he proposed that if you listen to someone's heartbeat for two minutes, and then he had some criticism aimed at him, so he upped the time to five minutes, and you hear no heartbeat, you can pretty much guarantee this person is dead. Yeah. So the stethoscopes comes into play here. And one other thing that I did want to address is sort of debunking those original sort of newspaper reports to some extent of premature burials and the things that people would find sometimes if they thought someone was buried alive brought up their coffin and found sort of a gruesome scene. So babies supposedly being born in coffins was one of the things I mentioned. When someone dies, if there's a a pregnant person who dies and they start to decay, something that happens with all bodies is stomach gases and things like that expand. And there's a a possibility that sort of as part of the decay process, you explode. (laughs) Um, Mm. So just because there's a fetus in there, and the impact of that explosion may expel it from where it once was. So that could be considered um, by people just opening the coffin and seeing this, like the baby's not in the mother, therefore they must have given birth to the baby. They must have been alive. So that's kind of debunking in some sense. That thing, (laughs) Uh, pretty gruesome. Um, Sounds coming from graves, that's also related to that. Um, A lot of gas in the digestive system, not only might it pop, like a balloon, but it might come up through your throat. So passing through the voice box and making sort of a groaning sound. So that's kind of debunking that. Um, The grimacing facial expression that was found on some exhumed corpses, a natural part of the decay process is the decay of muscles. So just because you died and you had this peaceful look on your face doesn't mean it's gonna stay that way. Um, Muscles can also dehydrate and then go very taut as well. Yes. Well, it's Depending like the, uh, the myth of, like, your fingernails and your hair growing yes. after you die. Yeah. But really, it's just, like, your skin pulling back. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So the chewed up, torn fingers and limbs, presumably from an attempted escape from the coffin, um, that can usually be explained by the presence of pests, rats, and insects, and all that kind of stuff. Just eating, eating your face. Hustle um, bodies eating your fingers, eating your toes, because that's, they eat, they got to eat. So that's what they do. The one thing that, according to Mr. Jan Bondesen, is not really explainable is when you find hair <laughs> clutched in the hands of corpses, like hair from their own head, um, that definitely wasn't there when they were buried. So mm. perhaps that is an indicator that someone was actually buried alive. But as far as the rest of them that seemed very frightening upon opening a coffin, babies sounds, uh, facial expressions, chewed limbs or fingers. Like some of them, they have a somewhat logical 
explanation to some degree. So maybe the fear of premature burial was a little bit overblown, but it does seem that at least to some extent, people were not actually dead and potentially being buried alive because there was such a short waiting time, especially when it came to disease epidemics and you wanted to get those people buried as fast as possible. Um, Perhaps they weren't actually dead and they were being buried alive, but it doesn't seem to be quite as widespread as was feared. Yeah. So, I mean, how accurately can they diagnose a coma? You know, when they're pre-stethoscope and still buying into the miasma sort of thing. I mean, I I guess they are still breathing uh, in a coma, but... It's very... They didn't have the proper tools to be able to tell that, though. And that's part of the evolution of science as we go on. Yeah, and I don't know that they would have necessarily had the means to keep someone in a coma alive, either. Mm -hmm that they were able to get them hydrated and fed. So who knows, maybe a death trance is that, but also I have heard many tales about those like last moments when the brain is like logging off now. Yeah, so science, like many things, is a, an ongoing process of discovery. And though it seems very obvious to us now that Of course, if someone's heart has completely stopped beating and they're not breathing after X amount of time, they're dead. We have things that more accurately measure those metrics nowadays that they didn't necessarily have back between 1700 and 1900 or so that made it not only uncertain for doctors themselves, but also for the general public. So you'd Mm -hmm. find people putting in their will, like, please make sure... I'm not buried alive. You have permission to do something to prove that I'm dead. Um, I don't want to go into details. There's some pretty gruesome stuff. But basically, like, if you think I'm dead, just kill me or cut something or do something to ensure that I'm dead. Um, Which is pretty gruesome. If any, like, the the stake through the heart, uh, like the vampire kind of thing, I wonder if that kind of overlapped there. Hmm. Which is like, oh, well, they were buried with a stake in their heart, you know? Well, maybe it was just to make sure they were dead or something. We will actually be talking about the New England Vampire Panic in October, as that is going to be our Halloween episode. Stay tuned. So put a pin in that for later. Put a stake in that for later. (laughs) (laughs) Or a little pin in the heart with a flag on the end of it. (laughs) Ah. (laughs) Uh, Well, that's all I have for premature burial. Like I said, I could have gone on and on and on about it. Um, But I found it really interesting and fun to dig into. That one was on purpose. Um, (laughs) And if anybody is interesting, I really recommend reading um, this book that I picked up, Buried Alive. I'll put the name in the episode description. So if you're interested, you can read all about it. Uh, It's kind of, like I said, a medical slash science history of this time period when science was kind of still developing as practice yeah it's it's interesting to think about the fact that it's like humans have been dying for as long as they've been alive it's kind of being alive is the precondition to death Mm -hmm. and that into you know the mid 1800s there was still disagreement about what constituted um the difference between you being the thing that is running your body and the the microbes in the ecosystem that you carry being in charge of the body, i.e. Mm-hmm. when it begins to putrefy, and that that seems to have been, at least in continental European things, still something that was kind of up for debate in some way. Yeah, and I mean, we can get into this in a future episode, but kind of still up for debate today and yeah. across cultures, like Christy mentioned off the top, like not every culture has the same definition of what, what does dead mean? You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's an opportunity for us to explore further in the future. Yeah. And we did yeah. talk about with Alexander the Great how his body stayed pristine for six days after he was pronounced dead. Mm-hmm. And there was theories that he maybe wasn't actually dead, but was in, like, a death trance. Maybe he was coma, in a death trance. <laughs> and that the embalmer maybe is the one who actually murdered him. Yeah. You're traveling somewhere with malaria. Take your anti-malarials. Don't skip days. <laughs> Take your medication. But uh, yeah, that's uh, all I had. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you learned something today and um, 
chances of you being buried alive in modern times is very, 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 very low. Um, so don't fear it. Uh, but if you do maybe put something in your will to uh, protect against that or consider <laughs> buying a security coffin. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Mortals Podcast is created, hosted, and edited by three morbidly curious individuals, Christia, Mariah, and Janine. You can find us on Twitter at Podcast Mortals, on Instagram at Mortals underscore podcast, and on our website, mortalspodcast.com. Show your support, access bonus content, and help us keep ads out of your ears by joining our community at patreon.com slash mortals podcast. Our music is A Mermaid's Eulogy by Etienne Roussel. Thanks for listening, mortals. Take care of yourselves out there. Uh, and briefly, just off the top, I also do want to define taphophobia, since this is what I have decided. No, Freya. Goddamn cat. It's like, it's time. They must hear my singing. Oh, my God. Oh, my cat God. Cat jail, Freya. Oh, my God. <laughs>